Welcome to Way Too Seriously, the podcast where you email us and we answer your emails on the podcast. I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And we've been promising that we would do a mailbag episode, like, for a very long time. We, I was going over all the feedback we ever got, and I, when we got feedback about Moana... I said, we're going to be do a mailbox episode really soon. And can we, <laughs> so that was so long ago. So long ago. I was going to say, we're going to take your emails way too seriously. Oh. Except not really. <laughs> we're going to not take them seriously at all. This- a, we get lots of comments on Twitter, lots of, a few comments by email. So we're just kind of going to read them out. We're going to discuss them a little bit and answer some questions that people have asked us. And this is basically like a holiday episode. Merry mm. Christmas. We're off for a Christmas break. Happy holidays, however you celebrate. We're going to read some feedback we've gotten, mostly on Twitter. A lot of it we have answered on Twitter, but we're going to repeat those answers or expand on them or respond when we see fit. And we're going to read them in chronological order, so starting way back, the first extended feedback we got, which was about The Wizard of Oz. Our first comment about Wizard of Oz comes from Twitter user liminally underscore human, who uh, gives us a lot of interesting thoughts. She's someone I've known for a while. She is very, feels very strongly about the books and about queer representations in the books as a queer woman. And uh, she says, so keeping that in mind, all of the book things, returning to the presentation of the lion in the film and the stories claiming by quilt bag movements, queer themes having absolutely been present from the beginning. That said, The Cowardly Lion was a cutting choice to present as gay. If I recall correctly, gay men were being viewed as cowards at the time, and certainly only a few decades earlier, cowardice was a capital offense during the war. Odds are this was an intentional way of coding the lion as a coward, which would be obvious to the viewers throughout the film. Which, of course, makes the reclaiming of the view of the film by gay men, especially in the past, and subsequent books by trans, especially women people today, all the more pleasing. She had a lot more to say about Wizard of Oz and all the books, and if you want to see all of that, you can uh, search for things she's commented on us. I pulled out something, some of the bits that I thought were most um, interesting to read in this context and comment on, on in this context. I really appreciate when people who have more experience who are personally affected by some of the seriously stuff we talk about respond to us. That makes my day because I really want to know what people think and be corrected as to like, hey, I wondered if this was coded as gay and uh, Liminally Human here chimed in with a lot of good comments on that. Yeah, and we, in general, we're smart people who can uh, apply critical thinking to stuff, but we don't have a lot of this experience personally. And so hearing from a more personal perspective is so valuable. So speaking of uh, homosexuality in in our films that we've watched, do you want to talk about what Chipper Allen said about Hook? Yes. When we were talking about Hook, we talked about Standard in Peter Pan is that it's a Freudian reading of Peter Pan is that the girl, Wendy, or whoever is um, Peter Pan represents a Freudian attraction to childhood for her. And that's why Peter Pan is played by her, by Hook is played by her father, because adulthood is threatening and Peter Pan is a non-threatening, youthful, uh, etc. And Chipper Allen on Twitter says, crazy read. 
instead of a Freudian psychodrama for a girl, what if this hook is Jack grappling with homosexual feelings in himself? He bonds with a gay hook and Smee, and his enemy is his father, who is pursued by every woman. Which model to choose? Rufio could be read as a son or brother to Peter Pan, or maybe as a gay companion. He's killed as Jack accepts a heteronormative life. I thought that was kind of an interesting read. I thought it was great. Yeah. I don't think... I would need to think some more. I don't I don't think Rufio... It is clear how Rufio fits into this reading. But I think, absolutely, there's a compelling reading to Peter Banting, Peter Pan in Hook represents heteronormative family life, and Hook and Smee represent uh, alternative to that and Jack is attracted to that alternative and then ultimately rejects it. Like, I mm-hmm. think that's a really strong read. Absolutely. So when we talked about Muppets from Space, we talked a lot about weirdos and what weirdo means. There was a couple, a bit of a conversation on our Twitter about that afterwards. So um, at Not Sailing Alone says, I never looked at Muppets as dealing with mental illness. As a child, I saw it as accepting an openness towards weirdos. As a weird kid, I found it comforting. From a guy randomly throwing a fish to a creature who gets messages in his food, to me, I saw this as, as acceptance. But you've brought up a very interesting point. Watching as an adult, I, refer, I revert to that childhood viewpoint. I've never looked at the oddness of the characters as portraying mental illness. Understanding of mental illness has come a long way since then, and examining the Muppets in this way is pretty fascinating. In response to that, Generosity said... I love seeing the variety of Muppets, both behavior and physical appearance. Muppets are accepting of one another. It sets a good tone. And then uh, Not Sailing Alone responded to that with, Yes, even when Kermit needs to wrangle them, he rarely tries to change them. To me, that's always been a kind of creativity. And that was really interesting. Like, that conversation went on a little bit. I pulled a little bit out of it. Mm. But I totally agree that the Muppets are about creativity there and i think that's absolutely what the text rather than the subtext is meant to be it's mm-hmm. about creativity and being accepting and that's one of the reasons why muppets are so uh affirming i mean why i read them as so affirming certainly mm-hmm. absolutely i don't think that that necessarily excludes a reading that takes mental illness into account though um And I'm still not sure, like we said in Muppets from Space, we wondered whether there's something about mental illness with Muppets that uh, Gonzo needs help that no one is providing him. But coming back to what uh, Not Sailing Alone says about, or what Generosity also says, that there's a real theme in Muppets of accepting people as they are. That is also something that is valuable from a mental illness perspective. That is... You get people need help when they need help, but also do you do you approach people with mental illness or learning disabilities or special needs, whatever, do you approach them by saying you need to change until you conform to what the world expects from you? Or do you approach them by saying, let's find a way to make the world accept you? Yeah. The Muppets absolutely takes the perspective of let's find a world that accepts you. Mm-hmm. Also on the Muppets, we had a very long conversation on Twitter about whether or not Grover qualifies as a Muppet, mm-hmm. because we asked, "What? who's your favorite Muppet? And someone included Grover within their list. And we, the two of us off, you know, just 
together had a long conversation that then spilled over onto Twitter as, what exactly counts as a Muppet? Is Yoda a Muppet just because he's a puppet? Do you have to be on the Muppet show to be a Muppet? No. I don't think Yoda is a Muppet, necessarily. I can't remember my stance back then. (laughs) Grover is absolutely a Muppet. Any of the puppets on Sesame Street are Muppets, because that's where the Muppets kind of came from, was Sesame Street. And we said this on Twitter. But that doesn't mean that everything designed by Jim Henson is a Muppet. Yeah, are the Fraggles Muppets? No, they're Fraggles. Yeah. And, like, we had a conversation back then that I'm recalling now about which characters from Sesame Street are easiest to move from Sesame Street onto the Muppet show, or vice versa. Yeah. Kermit's the easiest to move, but Grover seems pretty easy to move, too. Mm-hmm. Cookie Monster, you could almost move him between The Muppet Show and Sesame Street. But, like, Big Bird would seem really out of place on The Muppet Show, I think. Yeah. Right? Or Elmo, like, or Elmo, no, he no. would not fit on The Muppet Show at all. Definitely not. None of the, like, newer Muppets, Sesame Street Muppets, like Zoe or Elmo or... I don't yeah. even know a lot of them because it's been so long since I watched... In the same token, like, Yoda does not fit in any of those worlds at all. No. Anyway, that's uh, just, this went very, very long the first time. Yeah. Reproducing some of that conversation for you right now. Not Sailing Alone on Twitter sent us both on Twitter and by email some, uh, Sarah's her real name. I could just call her her name. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I like you. She sent us lots of uh, thoughts and information about Moana. Um, I'm going to pick and choose a few key points from all the things that she had to send to us, which we were we read with great interest. But um, she said, there's actually a lot of support for the movie in Maori and Pacifica communities in New Zealand. Its reception is complicated because it's a very imperfect representation, but a kind of representation nonetheless. The movie was recently released in New Zealand theatres in the Maori language. To your point about Maui's body, it's definitely a miss in our world. My eight-year-old daughter, who believes in Maori Atua, leaned over in the theatre to tell me that that's not the real Maui. Polynesian culture sees Maui not as a myth, but as an ancestor. Chief Tui, Moana's dad, is voiced by Tamuera Morrison. He's probably one of the most famous actors in New Zealand, and this is who I think his character's body is based on. Many of the voices are famous actors in New Zealand. Another problematic moment is during the tattoo. Tattoo is sacred in Polynesian culture. The lighthearted joke was a bit of a miss. Not that the Pacifica people have no sense of humor, but that sacred things are really for them to lampoon and not for Disney. She gives links to articles and uh, to a Maori dictionary to help pronounce uh, Maori names and words. I'll put links to all of those things in the show notes. And thank you so much for all your feedback about Moana, Sarah. Absolutely. She was really helpful in... In our knowledge of Polynesian culture. Yeah, in very similar to our comments about Limnally Human's uh, perspective as a queer woman, Sarah has this a perspective on Maori people. She has a perspective that we just don't. And yeah, so absolutely. We really appreciate any time people can offer us additional perspective. 
on a more lighthearted note about Moana, we had uh, um, at Amber H39 who said, "Damn you, WTS cast! Listening to your Moana show and crying in the grocery store. Big love to you both." <laughs> and we, we cried a lot in that. I mean, like as you know, we like to cry in our podcast, especially Paul. And <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> I re-listen to them sometimes, and it makes me cry, too. So there you go. We all cry together. (laughs) We got quite a lot of feedback, actually, about people who cried in that Moana episode, Mm -hmm. which that is, I feel like, the best episodes are the ones where we make you cry. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to be trying for that from now on in every episode. Yeah. Dan, from the podcast Family Movie Night, emailed us, I found your podcast in September when I was looking for other podcasts like ours. 33% of the movies we've reviewed, you've reviewed. (laughs) Our first episode was Kubo and the Two Strings, and I just listened to yours. It's a kind of bizarro mirror. Both our podcast loved and hated Kubo, but for different reasons. We thought it was beautiful and ambitious and cool, but the storytelling felt clumsy and scattered to us. Your main issue is whitewashing. As I listened to your frustrations, I started to believe that our frustrations were related. Both our podcasts wondered if Kubo was based on actual Japanese stories or something, but nope, just a bunch of white Californians having fun. I think involving people with good taste from the culture it was trying to imitate would have made that movie incredibly great. Oh, I absolutely agree. I'm still mad about Kubo and how beautiful and lovely it is and then how disappointing it was. And Dan gave us a few other... Re- I mean, he, one of the things... He also recommended that we go watch Coco, which, as we're recording this, we watched it today, yes. and it was great. Thanks for the recommendation. We yep. got recommendations of that from lots of places, not just you. But thank you for that feedback and that recommendation. Mm-hmm. First impressions on Coco? I think it was really good. Mm-hmm. Me too. Animation was unbelievably beautiful. Yeah. I'll need yep. to take it bit by bit to unpack all my impressions, but I think it was both good and seriously good, and I enjoyed it a lot. Yep, I think so too. I may eat my words if I think... When we do an actual episode on it, we might figure some things out, but first, very first impressions is good and seriously good. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Sorry, back to Kubo and the Two Strings, though. Um, Generosity says... Recently, I listened to your episode on Kubo and the Two Strings. I saw it as Kubo being a very unreliable narrator and using a, using story as a way of coping with his harsh life circumstances. Though that's based on only one viewing at least a year ago, if not more. I thought that was really interesting, and I answered this on Twitter a little bit, but I want to say some of what I said or or similar things here, which is I think it is it is absolutely one of the things going on in this movie that Kubo is coping with his harsh life by storytelling and whether you want to read it as a metaphor that the storytellers are adding on to the literal story is about a boy with magic uh, guitar powers. If that's the literal story, the metaphor added to that is still we can cope with uh, harsh circumstances and hardship through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think it's definitely possible to take it a step further and think that maybe the literal story is, this is a boy telling a story to himself about the world that he lives in and trying to make sense of it. I think that's a possible reading for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it's absolutely 
one of the metaphorical meanings of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this was about Muppet Christmas Carol or Muppets from Space, but we talked about, about Muppets from, Muppet from Space. We talked about Miss Piggy again and how she is. Um, what 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 was the quote exactly? The quote was, "I said, what if we take uh, someone who acts like she's a beautiful, glamorous woman, and everyone treats her like she's a beautiful, glamorous woman, but she's actually just a fat, ugly pig?" That's the joke at the core of Miss Piggy, and it's a misogynist joke. Yep. So, uh, strangely, strangely literal responded with, thank you, I've always hated Miss Piggy, and as a kid, her character kept me from enjoying Muppets outside of Sesame Street. I think on some level, I always recognized that ridiculing femininity was the joke, and I had no time for it. However, Kate, uh, K8 Met, Kate Met, says, I disagree about Miss Piggy. She's a strong woman in the camouflage of femininity. She leads with what men in a man's world expect, but she isn't afraid to drop the act to get her way with force. So that's interesting. Two perspectives on Miss Piggy. I don't know what I think, honestly. When when it comes to Miss Piggy, I think that maybe the core of her joke started off as being Mm -hmm. a misogynist joke, but it has grown to be so much more than that. I totally agree. Miss Piggy is complex. I think, on one hand... She can never fully escape the core of that. The character can never fully escape that core misogyny, which means that at her best, she's always kind of problematic. But on the flip side, there's always more to that. From her very first incarnation, there's more to that, her as a character than that, because she's at the same time a character who supersedes and overcomes a lot of stereotypes and negative and positive assumptions and bucks like all Muppets. She subverts expectations and she's anarchic and that is inherently leans towards liberation politics. So she's a complicated character. She's never fully, uh, she's never going to be a fully feminist character, but she's also never going to be a fully anti-feminist character. I think. Mm, absolutely. We talked much, much more recently about the Peanuts movie, and I don't know that we got any comments about this, but I kind of connect Miss Piggy to Lucy. Hmm. Um, because there's the same complex... I think Lucy is a better character than Miss Piggy, but she's hitting a lot of the same things where... Her uh, assertiveness and aggressiveness and competence is sometimes the joke in that is you wouldn't expect that from a girl. I think Peanuts manages it better because that's putting the joke on you instead of on her. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that Miss Piggy is sometimes aiming for that same kind of putting the joke on you instead of on her that that Lucy manages a little better. And that what's one of the things that's so appealing about Miss Piggy is the same thing that's so appealing about Lucy, which is like, well, forget it. I'm going to be great. And who cares what you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. So more recently, we got into it a little bit about Nightmare Before Christmas with uh, Alan, who is at Chipper Alan. Uh, He said, "I I was struck that you called out appropriation on one hand, but then criticize the holiday portals in Nightmare Before Christmas for being American-centric. Isn't that culturally authentic, though? To which I responded, I think it was me responding this time, 
that's a fair point, but the holiday worlds are fantasy, not connected to any specific country, so I would have liked some of the trees to lead to different non-Christian, non-American holidays. To which he said, <laughs> I love Princess Mononoke because it doesn't try to explain its Japanese idiom. It assumes you know and only alludes to its own cultural origin. Why should an American-produced, written, and performed and distributed movie be any different? But I responded with, does no one in America celebrates Diwali, Hanukkah, Day of the Dead? Kwanzaa is American. He says, that's fair. <laughs> it would have been cool if this was a secular holiday grove in the distance you could see other groves. So uh, it was an interesting discussion on like what I was a bit critical of it being all these very like it was Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter but I didn't quite put my finger on until Alan called this out, which I love. This is why I love responses because mm -hmm. I didn't quite put my finger on why it bothered me until he called it out, which was that there are so many other holidays, not just like around the world, but in America. So if this is an American movie, there are people celebrate. I mean, Kwanzaa is, has its roots elsewhere, but is an African American holiday. Yeah. For example, with an emphasis on the American. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, just that for an example, they could have had the Kwanzaa candle tree that he could have gone to. Any number of things. And, I mean, I don't, like, super fault them for it, but it's just, you know, one of these way too seriously things. And they don't have to have gone into those trees. And, no. like, this conversation went on. We were including just a little snippet of it. Yeah. But I think if a white filmmaker, Henry Selleck, had taken them into the Kwanzaa tree, that would have been cultural appropriation. Yeah. But acknowledging that Kwanzaa exists, well, that's maybe a necessary thing. I yeah. think Alan was, he said he'd been listening to several way too seriously in a row, and I think he was responding to us complaining about cultural appropriation in Kubo and the Two Strings, yeah. and then comparing that to our attitude in Night Before Christmas. I'd also add a little bit that I didn't say on Twitter at all, but re when you're rereading these comments, when he says uh, that Princess Mononoke is great because it doesn't explain its Japanese idiom, shouldn't Americans be able to present their American idiom? That to me is a, I, I, and I think it was devil's advocate argument rather than a really sincere one, because that's like, shouldn't men be able to explain their manliness and white people to explain their whiteness? Yeah, they do that all the time. Mm -hmm. You don't need to worry about Americans making room for uh, representing their American culture. They do that literally all the time. So that's not something to be worried about at all. White American culture. White American culture, yeah. yeah. And there you go, me being as bad as uh, I'm complaining about by uh, conflating American culture with white American culture. Yeah. Anyway... He had some. He had another question about uh, Night Before Christmas that I'm really interested in. We we talked about it a bit on Twitter, but he asked, "Do you think that there is an oogie, an oogie boogie in Christmas Town, or an equivalent of oogie boogie in Christmas Town? Is it Krampus?" Hmm. And it's just a little interesting thought experiment. Do all the holiday town like is oogie boogie is the villain of Halloween Town? Do all the holidays have their own villain? I don't know. You kind of, you guys kind of got into like what could they could be, but I was more like Halloween has a villain because Halloween is like scary villainous time. Easter and Christmas 
and Thanksgiving don't really have villains. Mm-hmm. If if Christmas has, a, I mean, Krampus is uh, German, uh, Norwegian, <laughs> Norwegian maybe. Maybe want to look this up, but I feel like Krampus is a specific. Sure seems German, doesn't it? We will punish you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um. But maybe like Jack Frost is the villain yeah. in Christmas Town is well, more my. Have meaning. you ever heard the uh, explanation of Krampus that is like, don't be confused. Krampus is not a villain. Krampus is Batman to Santa Santa Claus's Superman. Mm-hmm. That is, they both want to encourage children or criminals to be good. Krampus does it by scaring them straight, and Santa does it by rewarding their goodness. Yeah, that doesn't make him a villain. The villain of Christmas Town, like if we think that the villain of Halloween Town is Oogie Boogie, who unlike the rest of them is mean and wants to scare people to hurt them, and the rest of them understand the true spirit of Halloween is scaring people for fun, then the villain of Christmas Town has to be commercialism. Ooh, yeah. Right? He has to be some kind of like San- the Coca Cola Santa Claus is the villain of Christmas Town. Right. The kind of Christmas is all about buying things to impress people because it's someone who it fits into Christmas but doesn't understand the real spirit of it. And the villain of Thanksgiving Town would be someone who refers to it as Turkey Day. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose. And the villain of Arbor Day would be. <laughs> Lumberjack. A lumberjack. No, someone who fits into the spirit, <laughs> but gets it, or who fits into the theme, but gets the spirit wrong. So uh-huh. someone who, anyway. Yeah, okay. I can kind of see you that. Know what I, I mean? like. I like the idea of commercialism being the oogie boogie of Christmas Town. And the, the villain of Easter is like, if there's someone, if there's a, the missing the point of Easter... That's the Easter Bunny is the villain of Easter Town. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Let's move on before we offend everyone. <laughs> he also, Alan says, uh, I lived in, Louis- in southern Louisiana for over a decade, and I've always read Oogie Boogie as a New Orleans inflected character. I think he's supposed to be the boogeyman, not a voodoo doll, though. But the accent, cooking, and gambling said New Orleans to me. And I totally agree he's not supposed to be... I, I talked about voodoo, but I don't think he's supposed to be a voodoo doll. I just think that there's a voodoo aesthetic influence on him. Definitely, Oogie Boogie is supposed to be the boogeyman, for sure. Mm-hmm. But once again, someone with a perspective that isn't ours helping us out, and especially is nice when they help us out by agreeing with me instead of you. <laughs> you said Haitian he says Louisiana, and I agree with the Louisiana thing. Okay, and I said Haitian, tongue-in-cheek, and I stand by it a little bit because a lot of the New Orleans is by way, is Haitian by way of New Orleans. Fine. Whatever. Still don't agree. <laughs> so then we have a bunch of questions that yeah. I'm excited to answer. Strangely Literal and, and Chipper Allen both asked us questions. Both are of the podcast uh, Shadows and Chamblers about American gods and the Hallowed, H- Hallowed Ground Storycast, which is about various things. Check it out, all of them. Um, so let's start with the Strangely, Liter- Strangely Literal's questions. Yeah. What 
do your kids know and think about your podcasting? Our kids totally know about our podcasting. Oh, yeah, they know about it. They don't care at all about our Clockworks podcast about Legion because they haven't seen the show and we don't tell them much about it. No. And probably because since it's off season, we don't talk about it as much. But way too seriously, they definitely like ask us whether we're going to talk about this movie from way too seriously. Mm -hmm. And they have thoughts. They don't really have a good sense of what we mean when we say we're going to take it way too seriously. Yeah, they haven't really listened. They haven't listened to much of the podcast. They've listened to bits and pieces every now and then, but mostly they haven't listened to it. I don't want to ruin the movies too much for them by having them take them too seriously too soon. Yeah, but, I think... But we do talk about the serious aspects of them with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they mostly think it's funny. Like, they think it's funny to, like, impersonate us. They'll hear sometimes when we're podcasting, we're with an earshot of their bed. We do it while they're sleeping most of the time. But we're, we're with an earshot of their bedroom. And sometimes they'll, like, jokingly reproduce our, like, intro or whatever. They'll be like, I'm Jan Moffat. I'm Paul Moffat. Ha, 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 ha. You know, yeah. like. <laughs> I think there's an element there of them thinking, like, who on earth would care what you have to yeah, say? Yeah, very, very much. Very much that. Which is a fair point. Yep. <laughs> Um, she also said, by the way, your Friday night movie routine is adorable, and I would love to do something similar if I ever have kids. We recently had uh, a friend of our oldest daughter over for a sleepover, and she was she's made a comment that, wow, your family has a lot of traditions. <laughs> and it made me real, and it made me go like, oh yeah, we really do. Like, our every Friday night we have pizza in a movie is because that's just important to me. I like our family to, as a unit, the four of us, to be together and have these traditions have these things all together and we just it tickles us both to have these kind of things i mean and to be clear we have dinner together every night oh yeah absolutely it is not just friday fridays we have our family dinner and it's pizza and we watch a movie but every other night we have our family dinner and it's at the dinner table and it might be a little bit of Growing up, we always had family dinners growing up, but sometimes we'd watch TV. The idea of that horrified you. <laughs> you were like, how dare you? You can't watch TV in front of, you can't eat dinner in front of the TV. And I thought, you know, every once in a while you can. And so we compromised with once a week we can, we do on purpose and deliberately choose things. And it's kind of in general with our family, we are deliberate about all of our choices. And so pizza and a movie night was very deliberate choice that we get to have a fun night in front of the TV. And you might, it might not shock you listeners of way too seriously, but we take our traditions seriously. And we, I'm way, way more on board with let us deliberately choose to have a tradition of once a week sitting in front of a TV and watching a family movie while we eat a pizza that to me isn't horrifying, but like, hey, sometimes we just turn on the TV. I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, something to talk to a therapist about. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, she asks, has the podcast changed the types of movies you choose for Friday Night Movies? Moderately, not too much. These are all generally movies we would have chosen anyway. We haven't done any rewatches as much, which we yeah. do sometimes just do a rewatch of a movie we've watched before. I think in 
basically know, but sometimes there'll be a specific movie that we specifically want to watch for the podcast that we'll recommend to our kids because of that. Mm. I think we've both been deliberate about letting our kids veto our podcast-related choices, though. Yeah, like, absolutely. if we said, we want to watch this for the podcast, and they said, we don't want to, we would find time to watch it outside of our Friday night movies. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any ideas for a children's movie you would want to make? I don't make movies, so I don't know. I can imagine a movie. I am a writer, so I can imagine a movie I would want to write, I suppose. Yeah, like, when this question... I was saying earlier, if I think of it in terms of I would want to cause to exist, I can't think of any movie I would want to be the one to put the work into making. Like, yeah, you're not a filmmaker. I'm not a filmmaker. But if there's a movie that I would want to snap my fingers and have this movie exist, that's a different question. And I'm not sure. Like, I like adaptations of... uh classic stories and fairy tales. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's Disney's bread and butter. I'd kind of like to see a Pippi Longstocking movie. Mm, yeah, honestly. a really good adaptation a of good, it. Probably as a cartoon, but a good live action Pippi Longstocking mm -hmm. would be actually a lot of fun. Yes, that's that's a good call. That would be a good Both call. our daughters really like Pippi Longstocking, especially mm -hmm. our younger one. Yeah, and there are movies out there, but they're quite old. Quite old, and the special effects weren't up to snuff, and the yeah. you know old movies are terrible. <laughs> I would love to see a really good adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, which we're going to soon, and I'm really interested in what it's going to be like. So yeah. it, might, it might not be as good as I want it to be, but I would love to see a really good adaptation of it. A Wrinkle in Time is probably a little outside the wheelhouse of Way Too Seriously. It's probably not kid-ish yeah, enough. Maybe. We'll have to think about it. We're probably going to see it because I really like the books and our daughter really likes the books and our other daughter has not read it yet, but has absorbed a bit of uh, family uh, affection for mm -hmm. those books. We, we saw a trailer for Wrinkling Time when we went to see Coco today. I don't really like the... Everyone's very excited about uh, Oprah and Mindy Colling and Reese Witherspoon, and I don't really like any of them... Uh, in those roles. So I feel like I a think curmudgeon. Much, much rests on the three child actors, mm -hmm. which we haven't seen much of in the trailers. All the excess people are like, yay, famous people like Chris Pine and whatnot. But if the kid actors are good, they can, they can carry it. And they haven't shown us anything of Charles Wallace, who's yes. got to be pretty good to make this movie any good. Yep. That anyway, went off topic. That went off topic entirely. Anyway, I, I need to think about that question some more, but I have vague ideas. I think, I feel like I'm writing original things. Mm -hmm. I'm writing, I'm in my head. <laughs> <laughs> like my crow story. I could make that into a movie. Yeah, give us a, give us the thumbnail version of your crow story for here for way too seriously listeners. Well, there are four crows in our neighborhood that I've named, um, Heckle, Jekyll, Grey Malkin, and Poe. And they speak in riddles and they do all kinds, I mean, in my head, not in real life. The crows exist in real life. They, <laughs> <laughs> they do all kinds of things like speak in riddles and they have their own distinct personalities. And 
they send people off on on adventures and so basically my story is of a young child who starts talking to the crows and they tell her to do things that suddenly sounds like a horror movie. <laughs> I think it easily could be a horror movie. It could be a horror movie. They, or send, a her on, they send her on quests to gain wisdom, right? Yes, Isn't exactly. Like... Yeah, they send her on quests to gain wisdom and for happy things. Anyway, that could be a movie someday. If I ever write that book, and it becomes a book, maybe it can become a movie. I don't I, know. I want to read it and watch it. Yeah. She, uh, the next question is, is there anything about the WTS show that has surprised you once you, since you started versus your expectations going in? I didn't expect anyone would listen to us. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a surprise. Very literally, we recorded, I think, five, six of them just with, and didn't release them. Yeah. We just recorded them entirely for fun. So the fact that... There's even a single person listening to this genuinely is a surprise. Yep. And um, I think it surprises me that I still want to do it. <laughs> that I'm still like, I'm often tired on Friday nights and I'm like, oh, do you really have to? But then like, it's fun to do. Once I get going, I mm-hmm. enjoy it. I enjoy doing, I enjoy doing the podcast. I'm... I don't know if surprised is the right word. I knew, I always was aware intellectually, but it's kind of remarkable when you start making a list and saying it out loud, how many kids' movies have literally no people of color in them. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. I knew that was a trend, and it's not really accurate to say that I'm surprised by it, but I'm quite struck when I record, like, this is our 30th episode. Once again, there are no people of color in this movie at all. Yeah. The number of times we've said that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also the number of female characters as well that that happens with. It hap- I was a little more aware of that going into this. But to have it kind of in black and white, so to speak, has been surprising. Yep. So, thank you, Anya, Strangely Literal, for asking us those questions. Really appreciate that. Uh, um, Chipper Allen asked us a couple of questions, too. He made us do some homework. (laughs) Which Which we did. Which we did. And, like, statistics are kind of fun sometimes. Um, What studio, Disney, DreamWorks, etc., has the best seriously good track record and which has the worst? The worst is Sony. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh... Partly because both Hotel Transylvania and Hotel Transylvania 2 are pretty seriously bad, and they're both Sony. Um, But even Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which we enjoy very much, never gets better than Seriously Medium. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing that Sony has... That we... That we've watched. There's nothing we've watched from Sony that has been better than Seriously Medium. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a bad track record. Yeah, maybe we should watch another one by them and see how they do. Yeah. The best, unsurprisingly, the two best track records among movies that we've watched have been Pixar and Jim Henson Studios. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pixar is pretty reliable. I mean, Pixar is pretty reliably seriously good. We thought Toy Story 2 was seriously medium, but Inside Out and Up are the other two Pixar movies. We've talked about them way too seriously, and they those were both solidly in the seriously good. Yeah. 
see, it gets complicated in here because it, Disney now kind of owns everything. Mm-hmm. So Disney owns Pixar and owns Jim Henson, the Muppets and stuff. And so if you put all those things under the Disney umbrella, as well as Moana and other Disney movies we've watched, then there, then Disney gets the seriously good label. But once you do that, once you do that, I don't know that they're batting better than average statistically, because Disney also has a number that are seriously medium or seriously bad. Yeah, that's true. I can't count the Jim Henson, the Muppet Christmas Carol and Muppets from Space are both Jim Henson Studios, and I count them as Jim Henson Studios because when they were made, that was independent from Disney. Yes. Now Muppets are owned by Disney, and they're distributed by Disney and re-released by Disney and whatever, but the two Muppet movies, we called them both seriously good, and they're both, uh, were not made by a studio that was Disney at the time. Mm -hmm. Pixar, I think Inside Out was already... Disney Pixar, but Up, I think, was still when Pixar was just distributed by Disney. Yeah. Toy Story 2 definitely was distributed by Disney, but was Pixar Pixar. It all gets complicated when Disney just keeps buying everything, including its most recent acquisition of Fox. I mean, like, insane. All it needs to do is buy the WB and then... (laughs) Can you just imagine? We own Marvel and DC. Yeah. That's yep. what I'm saying. The world is just going to be owned by Disney. And, and people would say, yay, now we can have a crossover. And But actually, that would be really bad. Yeah. Disney now owns our other podcast. Legion is now owned by Disney. I know. Interesting. We'll see how that goes. So our very last question of the day, of the night, is from Alan. And it says, what... Was the animated feature from your childhood you were most excited to share with your kids, and how did that go? There's a couple that I would say I was excited to share. From my specific childhood, I was excited to share um, The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, neither of which we've done on way too seriously. And Little Mermaid was a big hit in general with both of our kids, especially, well, no, especially both of them. Um, and Aladdin was a moderate hit. They're not, they, Aladdin doesn't really stick in their minds at all, I don't think. But then from my older, like, late teen, early 20s days watching Totoro, mm-hmm. I really was excited to show Totoro to our kids and showed them it quite young. And that just became part of like their childhood as we watch that when we're sick and we have a, there's an upcoming episode of Totoro. We've already recorded it. It's coming out in January. So you'll hear more of our thoughts then, but that's definitely one that um, I've been very pleased with the results of showing that to them. And I don't know if I really forced it on them or what, but they love it as much as I do. And that's been very fun. I think the movie I was uh, most excited to show them was Beauty and the Beast. And you, when you were a kid, you had Aladdin on VHS, and Aladdin mm. was the movie that you watched over and over, and for me, that was Beauty and the Beast. And it's hilarious, if you're even a little bit younger than us, to, like, on VHS, and both our families kind of had one yeah. movie, one cartoon in the house. That's partly our parents' personality. Yeah, I think. My, my parents are very into, why would you watch something more than once? 
You've seen it already. Why would you watch it again? And I watch things over and over and over and over, and they do not understand me at all. <laughs> and my parent, my mom especially is, you know, cartoons are for kids, and I will watch them with you if I have to, but begrudgingly. Uh, and so a cartoon in the house was, you know, I guess if I have to. Mm-hmm. So that said, I've watched Beauty and the Beast so many times as a kid. It was my favorite as a kid, partly just because it was there. I was excited to show Beauty and the Beast to our kids. I don't even know when we did. We showed it pretty young. We've never talked about it on Way Too Seriously. One day we will. They liked it a lot. They're in, they like Beauty and the Beast. I was also really excited to show Totoro to our kids. And something that isn't from our childhood at all, but is from an adult uh is from adulthood, one of the movies I was most excited, one of the cartoons I was most excited to show to our kids was Song of the Sea. Mm. Uh, and Secret of Kells, honestly. Both of those. And they, again, reacted really well. They really were into both of them. Mm-hmm. They thought Secret of Kells was a little scary. I maybe showed that to them a little young. Yeah, Our kids are... Maybe this is because of their age still, or maybe it's because of their personalities, but our kids have never uh, bucked against us trying to show them some piece of culture that we love, and they've always gone on, been on board with, yeah, I yeah. agree, this is good. Yeah. Would they? I've never been disappointed that they didn't like something I like, didn't love something I loved. I've tried very hard not to put too much pressure on them. You have to love this thing. Yeah. But it helps a little bit that Without that pressure, they have been on board with a lot of the things. I mean, my daughter thinks that uh, Michelangelo is the best Ninja Turtle, so that's a disappointment. Michelangelo is the best Ninja Turtle. <laughs> She's correct in that. No, I'm afraid not. The best Ninja Turtles are a tie between Donatello and Raphael. No, Michelangelo is the worst Ninja t- Turtle. <laughs> he has nunchucks! He's the best, and he's a party dude. <laughs> yeah, party dudes are the worst. You know that. <laughs> You've never once been friends with someone who was a party dude. <laughs> Don't tell me you have. <laughs> you, you may be right. <laughs> with someone who does machines, like, I mean, I, I'll be friends with that guy. <laughs> and someone who's cool but rude, like, if I could get him to, to think I was cool, we could be cool but rude together. I will agree Raphael is definitely the second best Ninja Turtle. All right. But basically, our kids have <laughs> accepted our uh, recommendation, our cultural recommendations usually pretty enthusiastically. Yeah. They don't like superheroes as much as we do. No, that's okay. That's okay. And they, we showed them, I was, my favorite movie as a child was not a cartoon. It was The Princess Bride. Mm. The Princess Bride is the movie that I, you know, had seen hundreds of times. We didn't own it. Mm. We rented it. I remember the very first time we rented it and we watched it, rewound it and watched it again, rewound it and watched it again. <laughs> uh, so we be showed kind, our kids The kind, Princess rewind. Bride. And they liked it fine. <laughs> but that's fine. Yeah, they don't have to. They might watch it again when they're older and like it better, but they might never like it, and that's okay. That's just fine. Yep. My childhood doesn't have to be theirs. Yeah. They're really into Star Wars, like, more, way more than I was when I was their age. Yeah, that's true. Anyway. Yeah. So, 
This has been our mailbag episode. Thanks so much for all your feedback. We really love it. We'd love to hear more. We'd love to hear more feedback on our feedback episode. Yeah. And then feedback on that feedback episode and just a feedback loop forever. <laughs> uh, Puns. <laughs> feedback loop. Very good. Yeah, it really is. I'm going to say again what we said earlier that it is amazing that there's even a single person listening to us mm-hmm. uh, because we're just some people with a microphone. And when we started, we didn't even have that. We just recorded into the built-in microphone on our computer. Yep. So it's genuinely uh, amazing and touching and moving that people listen to us at all, let alone get back to us with their own thoughts. And uh, we couldn't be more grateful and appreciative of you, our listeners, especially those of you who tell us your own thoughts and what you have to say. Absolutely. So if you want to do that some more, you can find us on Twitter at WTScast. You can email us way too seriously cast at gmail.com. I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. I'm fighting a cold, so I'm so glad I got to do this. <laughs> Alright, it's late now and time for bed. For okay. us. Good night. Good night. Nighty night. <laughs>